Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady. I'm here with host Lou Weiss. Lou is the president of All Metals and Ford Group and the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. We certainly invite anyone who'd like to be a sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio to let us know, and we'll get your name out on the airwaves. Joining us today is Christopher Huynh. Christopher is going to talk to us about some very interesting things that he's developed. He has quite a track record with well-known names that you have heard of. Christopher, thank you for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you, Tim. So give us an idea of what you're involved with now after you finish just a little introduction of yourself, where you've been, what you've done. I was very impressed to read it. Uh, well, um, maybe I start from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, that's good. Uh, okay uh, Mr. I just want to tell you it's only a 30 minute show okay <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well you tell me when to stop then I, I, no, I, you know, yes. I guess a fun fact about me is I came to the country as a as a refugee child back in 1979 uh, and then moved very soon after that to Silicon Valley it was of course I didn't we had no idea but I was very lucky to have uh, to have uh, moved there, oh here, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the PC revolution, and I picked up hacking, and uh, and I have not stopped ever since. Uh, so that's, <laughs> you know, that's what, if you remember nothing else about me, uh, that, that's what it is. Uh, but I, I've had a long and, and varied career. Did my uh, undergrad at Berkeley and PhD at Stanford in semiconductor manufacturing. So. I know a thing or two about building clean rooms and 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 uh, and also that was part of a startup uh, <clears throat> that was of the the initial manufacturing wave in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, before it was all offshored, uh, called contract manufacturing. We were making PC boards and so on. And the company was eventually sold to uh, Selectron. Uh, and uh, I went off to Hong Kong uh, to become a professor. I started the computer engineering program there. So today, when you look at HKUST, Hong Kong University of Science Technology, there's a department of ECE, Electrical and Computer Engineering. That, that C was, uh, was my start. Uh, but I've also left the university and started a couple of companies in Asia. Uh, did system integration uh, with Netscape uh, back in the early days of you know, the internet boom. Uh, sold the companies and then moved back to the valley. Uh, and my friends at Google came calling and uh, helped launch Gmail, Calendar, Doc Spreadsheets, which a lot of people know as Google Apps today. Uh, but the last uh, six, seven years, I've been doing this thing uh, in in the space we call big data slash machine learning. And in between this project, uh, a big company uh, decided to acquire us, Panasonic. Uh, so most recently, I've been uh, running global AI uh, as part of that team at Panasonic, reporting you know to the CTO in Japan, uh, and and this latest startup that that I've uh, launched with pretty much the same team we've been working together for seven years, is is all about you know helping to advance industrial AI for for industrial companies like a Panasonic, like an Intel, you know. Uh, various industries, manufacturing, avionics, automotive, and so on. And I'd love to talk about that. Well, all that being said, <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us about your, your latest uh, venture in dealing with industrial organizations and what it is that you do for them? Yeah. 
Well, you know, maybe I, I start with uh, the, the, the hard won lessons that, that we learned uh, after we became part of, of Panasonic, which is, I think a lot of people know the Panasonic brand as a consumer brand, but it turns out most of the Panasonic business today is, is in the, you know, what, what the company likes to refer to as the B2B, but really, you know, selling to uh, industrial companies. Uh, so cold chain, uh, the coal supply chain now how a fish gets from ocean to your dining table of course it has to be kept refrigerated the whole the whole way panasonic is is a, is a global giant in that um, if you fly uh, and you look at the lcd screen uh, 70 percent chance that you're looking at a, a panasonic avionic product uh, you know including wi-fi and, and so on uh, in the automotive space you know a lot of the uh, instrument displays on, you know, when you drive a car, that's also produced by Panasonic. And, and of course, if you drive a Tesla, uh, you, you may know that all those batteries uh, are, are made, manufactured by Panasonic. So when we were acquired, we were, you know, as I told you before, about what I call a bunch of geeks with algorithms, right? And, and we were tasked with applying those algorithms to this, this vast empire uh, of, of Panasonic, which was undergoing a major transformation. The 100th, 100th year anniversary was 2018. Um, we, we ran into headwinds very quickly, and it's a very interesting problem, right? Coming from a place like Google, I assume that, you know, there's plenty of data. And so uh, if you know anything about machine learning AI, the, the fuel for machine learning is data. And, and we're talking massive amounts of data, right? Uh, the idea there is that if there's enough data, you, the, the algorithms, that, the machine learning algorithms can learn enough of the patterns so that it can project into the future and make predictions like, uh, you know, is, is the compressor likely to fail over the next two months so that you would proactively replace it before it fails. Um, uh, what we found is that for physical industries <clears throat> like manufacturing, um, the, the vast amounts of data that is there is actually not quite suitable for machine learning. In other words, it's not the right food for that, uh, for that animal. Uh, and so we, <clears throat> we were basically unable to make an, an impact uh, for the first six months uh, until we realized there was one key insight. Um, and it is that there's a whole lot of domain expertise in these companies that, that from, from the machine learning world, like I'm talking, now, coming from this side, we tend to ignore that human expertise, that human knowledge. And we, we, we want to just, re, just give me a lot of data and I'll figure it out. Um, but, but having run into that, what I call the small data wall, uh, and then almost reluctantly, you know, uh, uh, leveraging the human expertise, we found that it, that turns out to be the key uh, to, to execution. And uh, so today, what, what my company does, we're, we're now out of Panasonic as a team. Uh, we still have Panasonic as a customer, uh, but what we focus on is building algorithms, techniques, and, and, and technology and platforms that helps companies like Panasonic encode human expertise into the AI systems. So it's not just machine learning alone, but machine learning as guided by, as initiated by human knowledge. So let me ask you the, product and or service that you're providing. Is this primarily for uh, larger corporations 
or are you geared for uh, middle size and or lending your expertise towards the smaller companies who have a long way to grow? Yeah, I would say in principle, anybody can, can, can use this, right? Uh, any company that uh, has a lot of human expertise, domain expertise, and have, uh, you know, thinking about machine learning, you know, AI, can that help me with uh, applications like predictive maintenance, um, but have essentially not succeeded at it because of this small data problem. You know, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. a very interesting problem. People don't realize that it, in fact, there's not enough data. Now, I, I would say that the larger companies are in a better position to take advantage of this because they tend to have also the right personnel, right? Uh, but but I think the range of but by the way it's an open source project so uh, that's an that's an element where companies can just you know take that software and implement the stuff as well. Right. While we're talking about that, why don't you give us your URL for our listeners to be able to go see you on the, on the net? Okay. Well, the company's name is Itomatic, right? It's just like automatic, but starting with AI. So if you go to itomatic.com, you'll see a lot of what I'm talking about. Okay, that's great. Yep. Christopher, give us a sense of some of the projects because I know that when people hear AI, their, their, their head probably immediately jumps to the uh, Terminator movies and machine taking over man. Uh, where is it? Where is it really going? And what have you been working on to you know, reassure us? Yeah, uh, we, we can we can take off from there. I, you know, there's a question. Uh, so this is about 2017, when I went to London. There was a first AI conference, uh, you know, sponsored by O'Reilly. And, and you know, after I gave the talk about, you know, um, the lessons learned, uh, uh, take, taking AI into a place like Panasonic, uh, there was one question from the audience. Uh, you know, how you know, essentially, are you replacing a lot of you know line uh, manufacturing people. Uh, and I thought about that question a bit. I realized that everything that we had done up to this point and really since is almost the opposite of that. Um, uh, so far, the successful applications of AI in industrial uh, companies have been more about where there's not enough scalable, if you will, you know, to, to use a term of Silicon Valley there's human expertise, but there are not enough of them, right? Because of the scale of the deployment is so large. Um, and these experts, you know, to be very blunt, the, this expertise is dying, right? Because young people today, right? They prefer to go to college and, and, and get some computer science degree, you know, software is eating the world, right? But the, these physical industry that requires hands and, and, and brains sort of connected, there are not enough people, right? So, so my answer to the question at that uh, London conference is that it turns out what we're trying to do is we're trying to scale the expert, right? Uh, I'll give you one example, uh, a predictive maintenance uh, case. Uh, this is for, uh, for Japan. Japan has these large uh, supermarket chains, right? It turns out 7-Eleven is a, is, a, is a supermarket chain in, in, in Japan, uh, Family Mart uh, and, and, and so on. Um, they want to have predictive maintenance uh, for refrigeration in, you know, in, in, in the supermarket so that a failure, an un unplanned failure doesn't take down the, the entire operation. And all of Japan 
uh, you know, the, the service organization that is supporting uh, these, these markets uh, has about three experts that could look at sensor data and make sense of it. So how do you, how do you support uh, you know, that, that large market? The only way you can do that is to somehow codify the expertise the knowledge that people have, and these people have accumulated that experience over, you know, three, four decades. Uh, anyway, so that's an interesting uh, perspective that we learned we're actually not in the business of replacing uh, human labor as much as scaling human expertise. Tim and I have been doing shows now for quite a while, uh, a lot of it having to do with uh, the skill gap and uh, all the things that you just mentioned about the you know, tribal intelligence and being able to collect it, collaborate it into a program so you don't lose all that intellectual data. And uh, you're right. And uh, it actually winds up creating more job functions than less. That's right. Yeah. Right here in the US, a Panasonic acquired company, uh, Husman, H-U-S-S-M-A-N-N, uh, -S -S you may be familiar with them. Mm -hmm. uh, again, also in the refrigeration space. Their number one problem today is they cannot get enough skilled service personnel to go out and maintain the equipment, right? Mm -hmm. it, it pays really well. So guess what one of their solutions is? I mean, other than you know, applying the the, uh, the you know the, the the AI technology that we're trying to do, is that they're they're literally setting up schools right themselves so that they can they can you know attract enough people to get into this profession or to maybe to return to this profession. Well, that's interesting because Tim and I had a guest on about two years ago. Uh, it was a company up in uh, New Hampshire, where two that's companies. Right. New Hampshire, right? They, between these two companies, unrelated, had serious problems of getting help. And they didn't even have enough people in the state. Yeah. So they wound up putting together a school and they shared the responsibilities, they shared the training, and they wound up bringing in people from other states because you can get a training degree from them and get a job. The only proviso, if you remember, Tim, was that they were not allowed to steal employees from one another. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, these, these, these skilled people are, are getting more and more precious and more rare, you know, here in the U.S., what with, you know, a lot of the offshoring we've done you know, in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Christopher, where do you think that offshoring is presently going? Are we beginning to onshore? Is it a zero-sum game? What's really happening there if you have a, an idea about a, a offshore? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's a very current topic, right? Uh, it, it turns out now we're realizing there are considerations other than pure, you know, capital and, and, and OPEX costs, right? Even national security considerations, right? And, or even something as as simple as what we're talking about, the, the, the skills that are needed just to service equipment. Um, uh, I, 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 if, if you think in terms of changes in deltas, I definitely see a, a sign that is pointing back onshore from the US perspective, right? Uh, for various reasons, uh, not least because China is getting more expensive as well, right? Uh, as, as the economy develops, the, the, the cheap labor that we were counting on uh, you know, for 
for as a primary reason for uh, for offshoring is is become less and less uh, significant. Uh, so so I think uh, certainly in high end manufacturing industries that people you know I I come from that that was my PhD semiconductor, right? Uh, in the last couple of years, people realize okay, well this is actually a critical physical industry uh, that we can't just you know software our, our way out of, right? Uh, so there's a there's certainly a big trend toward building very large scale uh, semiconductor manufacturing, you know, back here uh, within the U within the U.S. Well, Christopher, your approach to AI is fascinating, and I'm equally fascinated here that, as you correctly identified, the loss of expertise simply to population aging is so critical that you've identified a way to begin to capture that knowledge. So how is it being used by some of your clients? Okay, I'll, uh, I'll stick to the predictive maintenance example, right? Uh, predictive maintenance in the purest sense is trying to answer this question. Can you on, on a daily basis, can a system on a daily basis, tell me over the course of say the next month, right? Of all of the equipment, uh, that I have all the sensors and all the actuators that I have, you know, out in my fleet, uh, which, which are the top 100 I should look at because they are likely to fail, right? Is the compressor in the case of refrigeration equipment, is it the filter and so on? Um, if, if, if that, that ideal can be reached, it is so much better, certainly so much better than reactive maintenance, which is fix it after it's broken, right? So you could have hundreds of thousands of losses already. Uh, it's even better than preventive maintenance as well, because preventive is just go ahead and replace everything periodically. So it's so very likely you're, you're doing things that are unnecessary. Predictive maintenance is very sharply focused on things that are most likely to fail. Um, so if you think about it from a, from a technical perspective and, and you know, machine learning AI, the, the way that I would you know, help people relate to it is nothing more than pattern recognition, right? Humans, we do it so naturally and so well that we don't think of it as predictive analytics. But you know, if if I throw a ball at you and you catch the ball, you're doing very complex predictive, uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence. Well, natural intelligence, right? So, predictive maintenance can be thought of as can can we get machines right to look at these sensors long enough that after a while they can sort of forecast the behavior uh, uh, into into the future. Now, so that's the basic idea. When you actually apply machine learning algorithms to that particular problem, you realize that you run into a, a, a problem pretty quickly, which is in order for algorithms, right, to, to learn enough about failures that they can predict when failures are gonna happen, they need a lot of examples of past failures. Like when I say a lot, I mean, not tens or hundreds, thousand millions right and so this is the problem you can collect a lot of sensor data but in terms of collecting what in the machine learning world we call labels right the, the actual label of actual failure that is very small data right so machine the, so the conclusion of that observation that's the wall we ran into is that we actually have a small data problem when it comes to say predictive maintenance in these physical industries. Um, we can easily identify patterns that fall out of the normal, but we cannot tell what the failure is gonna be. 
And it turns out in order to predict or to, to observe and, and say, hey, it's likely to be the compressor, that still requires a human expert who has a lot of knowledge that are outside of that data. That's, that's the key insight. When you have a, a two decade, three decade, four decade, you know, long expert, they've seen a lot of things more than just, you know, you, you may think that the data is massive, but they've seen a lot more. They've seen the variety of equipment, yeah. you know, they know physics or they know engineering and so on. So it turns out in order to accurately predict what is gonna go wrong, we call it fault prediction, we need to encode that human expertise. And, and so that's, that's one uh, very large class of examples of where human knowledge is, is so useful. In, in fact, I, I, I didn't uh, give you the sort of deadline of the technology we work on, we call it knowledge first AI, right? Not <laughs> data first, right? right, right, right. <laughs> which is, which, yeah, it's knowledge first AI. We, we've been talking to uh, a lot of companies who are facing uh, the, the problems that we've been talking about. And uh, some of the smaller and medium-sized companies, they're recognizing that they've got this, this uh, problem of losing intellect, losing knowledge. And when somebody wants to retire, you know, they give a 30, 60 day notice and they're, they're gone. And now you have a, a 22 year old who uh, doesn't know quite as much as the person who's with you for 40, 50 years. So what, they, what a lot of these companies have been doing now when they are um, exposed to the, this potential, uh, they offer incentives to people to stay, don't leave. Stay and we're gonna get you somebody and you're gonna train them on the job. Yeah. Apprenticeship. And, Right, and while they are learning that, they there are apparently a fair number of software programs out there that you feed information as you're working. And as you talked about, you're collecting all this data and the machine learns how to do it. And then the person you're training knows how to do it from the machine or the software. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a very interesting, uh, uh, time dilemma that we're in uh, right now. Um, and I think people are beginning to get it that it's not so much that you're gonna lose jobs as many believe, but you're actually gonna be gaining jobs. That's right, yeah, doing other things, right? That, that yes. Doing more advanced things. I think there's a, you know, your, your, what you say reminds me of a story that I, I think I can share because it's not, it's not you know, confidential knowledge. Um, you may know that Panasonic is, is you know, really behind the Gigafactory, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That makes batteries for, for uh, uh, Tesla. In the early days of setting that up. Uh, so the idea with any manufacturing is, you know, Intel has this phrase called copy exact, right? You, you mm -hmm. have a successful plant and you, you copy every measurement and just do it exactly. And so there's a sort of a, a similar copy exact from the manufacturing operations in Japan that are making very good, you know, high quality, high yield uh, battery uh, to Nevada. And, and it turns out, you know, other than the, the, the uh, you know, the growing pains, there was a particular problem with human expertise, right? The, the people that, that, was, that, that could be hired into Gigafactory around there did not come from, you know, like I said, we've, we've had 
30 years worth of uh, uh, sort of lack of tooling and, and manufacturing expertise in the US. Uh, and so yields were extremely low, right? Uh, and it turns right. out most of it was basically just human error, right? Uh, or uh, human knowledge, knowing exactly you know what what you know a good battery looks like a, a good sheet coming off of the of the line looks like and so on mm -hmm. so the punchline here is it turns out one solution one early solution was to import a lot of the japanese manufacturing uh, operations people right in, in into nevada and it takes a while uh, exactly the you know the example that you that you show is through kind of a apprenticeship system like a lot of the skills were transferred to you know, essentially local people in, in Sparks. You know, it's interesting, different parts of the world have different me methodologies on how to deal with this issue. And Germany has a very interesting program and they've had it for decades and decades. And that is that when you go to public school in uh, Germany, you are two days or three days a week, you're involved in uh, uh, craft development manufacturing, making things. And the other two or three days, you are doing liberal arts and math and sciences. So they're getting a fuller education in terms of their future careers. Here in this country, uh, up until recently, uh, parents always want their kids to go to college, go to college, you want a degree, you know, you'll be the first in the family to get a degree. Well, it doesn't work that way because you wind up with a two, three hundred thousand uh, dollar uh, college debt. Mm. Uh, you have to go get a job, but you're not going to earn a hundred thousand dollars a year. The first couple of years you're there, you're going to make forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, which is quite different than uh, uh, what's going on in the um, craft world. Uh, take for example, uh, to be an underwater welder which is a very dangerous job. And I think it's considered the most dangerous job in the world. Wow. You can make $150,000 plus stock options, plus healthcare, plus pension, and so on and so forth. So we're, I think parents need to be taught, we've talked to a lot of people about this, that parents must understand that going to college may not be the answer all for your bright little kid. Yeah. yeah. You gotta give them, full exposure to lots of different things. Yep. And then yeah. that brings us to where you are now. Yeah, you know, well, you know, individual choices aside, which is important, I think in the aggregate, right? Like an economy, uh, we, we cannot afford not to have the physical side of it, right? Oh, sure. Um, you know, we, we're still, you know, you and I and, and Tim, we're, we're still physical beings, right? We still eat, we still drive cars, we still fly planes and so on. Uh, so we, we need to have that, you know, and if, you know, Silicon Valley is actually not unaware of this. Um, uh, you know, there are various movements. There's the maker movement, actually people making things, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you may have heard, you know, firms like Peter Thiel actually has challenged, uh, you know, people to, you know, people of the right profile to drop out of college and, and get a grant from the firm, $100,000, so they can go build something, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I like to think that cyberspace up to now has been kind of an aberration. The only reason we went cyberspace was because the computers, the early computers that we built could not really connect to physical space. And so we call it cyberspace. Right. 
But as right. soon as we have devices like iPhones and with sensors and actuators and so on, you know, these devices are connecting back to, to the physical world. I think there are right. reasons that, that what I, what I, is important. What I found interesting is that uh, Japan uh, literally made the robot world. Yes. They lost a whole generation of males as a result of the Second World War and they developed the robot and they are now the number one producer of robots in the world. Uh, and I just read recently, they're coming out with a whole new series of robots that are called soft touch robots. If you touch them, they feel like a human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I, you're one of the few people that I, that, that I see realize is the connection between Japan's aging population and the advances in robotics. In fact, it was exactly the reason for that. Japan saw that it was, as a country, getting older, yes, and, and not well, enough replacement birth, right? Like it's the case for most uh, advanced sure. economies, and so their solution was robotics, right? That, that's right. why they invested so so early on, right? And you're and you're right. Not many people know about this, right? There's, there is a direct connection. Oh, directly, directly. And the United States, we are we do have a fair amount of robotic type machines that are doing jobs that humans used to do, could do, would have done, but now they have them monitoring these machines. So one person can monitor three, four machines. You're getting almost four times the volume of production. So there's uh, a lot of great things going on. And you know, when I, when I was a kid growing up, I, I used to always think I, I was born in, uh, in the 40s, 1940s. And I, I always wondered, you know, what's it going to be like in the 2000s? You know, and I, I was, you know, 10 years old in 1953, it was 50 years later. Well, never thought it would be like it is, but it's really an interesting time. Yeah. And exactly I, one space odyssey, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Star Trek. Um, uh, Christopher, I appreciate your being here. I'm sorry that uh, we've lost connection with Tim. Uh, he's probably hearing us. I don't know what the problem is, but not technology works all the time. <laughs> right? Well, I've enjoyed the conversation. Say hi to well, Tim. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate it. And good luck with the projects that you're working on. And I just want to say uh, thank you for everyone listening to us today and uh, listen to uh, all of our podcasts at uh, Jacket Media Co. or Manufacturing Talk Radio. And uh, we will be, uh, actually, we have a couple of new shows coming up. And it's uh, strange that Tim brought it up before about offshore, uh, offshore uh, um, reshoring uh, jobs to the United States. Uh, one of the most well-known person in that world is a gentleman by the name of Harry Mosier. And Harry's going to be doing a show with us calling it Mosier on Manufacturing. And mm -hmm. we're going to be uh, starting with that in another week or two. Uh, Harry's a great guy. He's been honored by uh, many in that segment of our uh, economy and our world. Uh, and But folks, listen to all of our shows. And, uh, we appreciate uh, uh, your listening. So uh, Christopher Wen, thank you again for joining us. And we'll be talking to you again soon, I hope. Thank you, Lou. Love the jackets. All right. Thank you. If you join enough shows, you get one for free. Yeah, we, we agreed <laughs> on five, right? <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.